What was it like to cover President Donald Trump? Hi, I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, now a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute. During the four years I covered the Trump White House, I continually reached for the big brass ring. An exclusive interview with the President of the United States. It took four press secretaries and more than three and a half years to score. The one-on-one lasted four and a half minutes. During the exchange, Trump was different than he had been during two interviews with regional reporters in which I participated. But then the scene was different. Not the Oval Office, but a packed indoor rally in Henderson, Nevada. The timing was different as well, mere weeks from the November 3, 2020 election. Already, Trump was claiming the November election was rigged. Episode 6, The Interview. It took me three and a half years to get a four and a half minute exclusive interview with President Donald Trump. I pitched all four press secretaries to grant me a one-on-one. In the early glory days, Trump gave a lot of interviews, including to the New York Times and major networks. Trump was talking, but I didn't make the cut after repeatedly making my case to Sean Spicer. Press secretary number two, Sarah Sanders, was acutely aware of my efforts to sit down with the president. But no dice. Stephanie Grisham listened. No interview. Kaylee McEnany designated the job of hearing my case to a deputy and an assistant press secretary. This was my pitch in 2020. Trump has the closest ties to Nevada of any president in history. He owns a hotel in Las Vegas. Everyone knows how important Nevada will be in November. This was his chance to reach voters in a state he narrowly lost in 2016. I'd be fair, which my reporting shows, and I wasn't a gotcha peacock. I asked fair questions at the briefings. I reached out to White House aides, campaign people, and big shot supporters asking them to put in a good word for me. Many inside and outside the White House bubble tell me they nudged Trump world to say yes. I know my friend Alice Stewart, the CNN commentator, was a strong advocate. I did not appeal to Sheldon or Miriam Adelson, who owned my paper, the Las Vegas Review-Journal, and were Trump's biggest donors. Why? The Adelsons owned Israel Hayom, the most circulated daily paper in Israel. Israel Hayom's editor, Boaz Bismuth, interviewed Trump, but not in a way that worked for his paper's reputation. Bismuth conducted his Oval Office interview within hours of Trump dining with Sheldon. Defying expectations, Trump actually offered that Israeli settlements did not help the peace process. Oddly, that comment did not lead Bismuth's story. I feared that bringing the Adelsons explicitly into the interview request would have given the Trump team reason to expect a softball interview, whereas I was focused on conducting a fair interview more friendly than Trump could expect from the front two rows, but fair. My persistence finally paid off. In September 2020, I got word that if I traveled to Las Vegas, where Trump was holding a rally, I had a good shot at an interview. No promises, but staffers clearly were pushing for it to happen. I'd been through this drill before, show up and see what happens. 
1999, candidate George W. Bush's team okayed my sitting in on an interview conducted by San Francisco Chronicle colleague Carla Miranucci. The condition was I could be there but not ask questions. You see, I disagreed with Bush on ethanol subsidies, and that prompted the Bush team to play hard to get. As I expected, at the end of Carla's questioning, Bush looked at me and asked why I had been so quiet. Then he invited me to engage. We had a friendly exchange about ethanol, his response to endorse biomass, a smarter renewable energy resource. So I expected that if I flew to Vegas, I'd probably get time with Trump. Still, I was out on a limb. My editors okayed the trip with the understanding that I might or might not get an exclusive. But who are we kidding? If I didn't get it, I'd look ridiculous. But then, fortune favors the bold. What did I expect? I figured I'd get a 20-minute sit-down in Trump's hotel. It didn't occur to me to press for details about exactly where or when we'd talk. I put all my focus and energy into getting to yes. When I arrived in Vegas, I learned that I likely would interview Trump after his rally at the Cirrus Aviation Center in Henderson, Nevada, near the airport. 20 minutes? Forget about it. Maybe 10. And in a crowded indoor stadium filled with people who didn't fear getting COVID. It was Tulsa 2.0. But it was now or never. Of course I signed on. The White House press team assigned me to the pool. I checked into the press hotel and got up early for the COVID test, which was negative. Later, I boarded one of the press vans headed to the rally. When we arrived, I plunked my laptop on one of those long tables reserved for traveling press. The RJ had pegged videographer Rachel Ashton to cover the rally and, we all hoped, taped the exclusive interview to post on the paper's website. I had not told others in the traveling press that I might have an interview with Trump. Before that day, when I had a chance to sit down with Trump, I'd made a point of wearing my most expensive outfit, a St. John's dress and jacket. This time, I deliberately dressed down so it would be less obvious. On occasion, you see, a rival reporter has tried to muscle in on my access. I didn't want to signal what might follow. Aides came over to check with me, so it became pretty obvious to my colleagues what might happen. They were from bigger outlets. They'd had their moments, and to their credit, did not begrudge me mine. The Trump team told me I'd have mere minutes with the president and that they might have to move my FaceTime with Trump to before the rally. I should be prepared, and it still wasn't a guarantee. The moment came before the rally. In a flash, Rachel and I grabbed our gear and ran over the concrete floors to a space set up for the interview, surrounded by heavy curtains behind the podium. The setup was meant for a TV crew, not a print interview. Be it noted that while Trump made known his affinity for regional press, by regional press he usually meant local TV, not local print. Songs from Trump's playlist were blaring. You can hear Billie Jean in the background. And the crowd was making a lot of noise. It was the worst setup for a one-on-one you could imagine. But I'll always be grateful to the people who made it happen. If you watch, if you listen, you'll surmise that Trump didn't seem to want to talk to me before the rally. And I didn't get the best Trump as a result. When I participated in two small group interviews with Trump before, he was engaged. He paid attention to the journalists in the room. He seemed to think about his answers. I liked that guy. 
I wished America could see that Trump. He was thoughtful and polite. But that man did not show up on that Saturday evening in Henderson, Nevada. The Trump I interviewed just wanted to get the whole thing over. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back in a flash with more fake news. Hey, this is Glenn Lowry, the host of The Glenn Show. Every week, I talk to scholars and authors on a wide range of topics with a special focus on race and inequality in the United States. Every other episode is with my friend, John McWhorter, the linguist and author of the book, Woke Racism. I invite you to check us out at glennlowry.substack.com. I'll walk you through all four and a half minutes and play his complete comments starting now. So I began with a butter-up foreign policy question. You went to Riyadh and you went to Jerusalem, your first trip abroad. Did you plan the Middle East peace plan? Was the seed already in your head then? It was in my head. I had the feeling that for 40 years they've been able to do nothing and they paid the Palestinians a lot of money. I cut that off almost immediately because they weren't saying good things. They weren't saying nice things. And we were paying them $750 million a year. I cut it off and I started dealing with the countries, the big countries like UAE, like Bahrain, who are going to be at the White House on Tuesday signing a very important document. First time in many, many years. And there are many other Middle Eastern countries. Will the Saudis join? I think they will at the right time. It was a good starter question, which had been suggested by an editor. The exchange did not make news. Then I went to the most obvious topic. The president was holding a crowded indoor rally in defiance of state COVID rules. Also, wasn't Trump concerned about attendees getting COVID? I've heard some in the Trump team were furious that I went there. But really, what journalist would not ask those questions? So there's a limit. Governor Sisolak has 50 people per event. Are you subject to that? We had many sites, and this governor, outside sites, and this governor, what he did is a disgrace. And he's in charge of ballots. He made it impossible for these people to give us the sites. They were exterior sites. You know, last night we had 29,000 people, and we had people outside by the tens of thousands near Reno. But now, tonight, it was very interesting. I said, how are we doing? They canceled six different sites because the governor wouldn't let it happen. All exterior sites. So a friend of ours let us use this. Outside you have 30,000 people. Do you see what's going on outside? Yeah. You have 30,000 people trying to get in. The follow-up again was something anyone watching would want to know. Aren't you concerned about getting COVID, though, and then close to No, I'm not concerned. I did not know how he'd respond. Those are the best questions in my book. And let me note, Trump could have given a better answer. I can't believe I'm saying this, but he could have said, My supporters don't want to be cowed by COVID, nor do I. Instead, Trump confirmed that he didn't care if his supporters got the virus. It was a clarifying moment. And wait, there's more. I'm more concerned about how close you are, to be honest. (laughs) Sorry about that. I really thought he was joking. When we faced each other before the interview, I offered not to wear a mask. Trump wanted me to keep it on. He made that clear. And he made sure I kept my distance. I'm, uh-huh. I'm on a stage that's very far away. Uh-huh. And so I'm not at all concerned. I asked Trump about his relationship with Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak, 
a Democrat with whom Trump had tangled and whose COVID rules Trump was flouting. Have you ever talked to Governor Sisolak? No, I've spoken to him. And it, it seems like there's something personal. You call him a clubhouse governor. Well, he is. He's a, he's a political hack. Trump went on to predict the Nevada election would be rigged. Let me just tell you, he's in charge of ballots. There's no way he's going to be honest about it. It's a rig. It's a rig. 100% rig. I have no doubt about it in my mind. Just like we couldn't get a site in Las Vegas. Even in Reno, we went and we have we ended up with a great site. We had so many people, tens of thousands of people last night. You know, tonight we had six different sites, and he was unable to, he would make it impossible for these people. And his people made it impossible. So we ended up here at a friend's place, and but they only have about 6,000 people inside. No, but it shouldn't have happened. I didn't take Trump's charges of rigged elections very seriously, because neither did he. You see, Trump created a presidential advisory commission on election integrity in May 2017. He named Vice President Mike Pence to be chair of the commission and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach to serve as vice chair and day-to-day administrator. Trump's decision to rely on Kobach reflected a lack of seriousness in getting to the bottom of any election mischief. Because if there was any impactful voter fraud in 2016, Kobach was not up to the job of proving it. The panel produced no report that established there had been voter fraud or suppression in 2016, and it was dissolved after eight months. So when Trump talked about a rigged election, I pushed back, and for bonus points, he continued to predict election fraud in Nevada and other states. It should have been outside. Secretary of State, the governor doesn't really control what happens. The governor totally controls it. The governor is the one that made it very difficult, and he controls it. That's okay. He wants to play that game. We'll play the game. But you know what the game is? The game is he's also controlling ballots, and it's a crooked operation. As far as I'm concerned, this is a rigged election. This is a rigged election, and he's not the only one. You have Pennsylvania. You take a look at what's going on in Pennsylvania. They've had many, many ballot operations over the last number of years. Almost every one of them has turned out to be fraudulent. And they were small operations, not where you're sending out millions and millions of ballots. Do you want Nevadans to vote by mail? I, I want everybody to go and vote unless you do an absentee ballot. Okay? So if you do an absentee ballot where you send for it and it comes back. But they're sending ballots all over. No, I don't think that's good. Because it's proven to be people that don't even want a ballot end up getting a ballot. They don't even know what to do with it. And what happens is people take those ballots and there's great fraud. And that's been proven in New York. You saw that. It's been proven in New Jersey. It's been proven all over. Then I asked Trump what he could do to bring back the strip, which had been devastated by COVID. So what could you do to bring the strip back? Well, it's going to come back because we have the vaccines and the vaccines are going to be coming very soon. Therapeutics already. You look at the, you know, you look at the death toll. It's way down. But you look at therapeutics, we've done great with remdesivir, with the plasma, convalescent plasma, plasma, and you look at all of the things that we're doing, it's incredible, and it's going to come back. We've done a great job. Ventilators, we've done one of the best jobs anywhere in the world, and we have a big country. And other, our testing program is better than anybody else by far. You know, it's been really amazing what we've done. So will COVID be in the mirror next year? You said I think so, yeah. I think COVID will be in the mirror next year. Trump responded by talking about therapeutics and vaccines in development, 
which were important. But he'd been given a chance to talk about what he'd do for Las Vegas in Nevada specifically, and he didn't swing at the ball. He ended the interview predicting COVID would be in the rearview mirror within the year. I certainly hope that was true. As I wrote the story on the interview, I eschewed a dramatic lead and let the president's quotes speak for themselves. The takeaway? Trump was afraid of getting COVID, but he was utterly unconcerned about anyone else getting it. He couldn't even be bothered to feign interest. The New York Times wrote two stories that led with the interview. The Washington Post reported on it, as did wires, major networks, and other outlets. Two weeks later, at the first presidential debate between Trump and Joe Biden, moderator Chris Wallace asked Trump if he was concerned that his massive rallies could spread the virus. President Trump, you're holding large rallies with crowds packed together, thousands of people. Outside. Outside, yes, sir. Agreed. Uh, Vice President Biden, you are holding much smaller uh, events with... Because nobody will show up. People with... (laughs) What's true? Nobody shows up to his rallies. All right. In any case, why you holding the big rallies? Why you not? You go first, sir. Because people want to hear what I have to say. I mean, you're you not worried a great about job as a president, and I'll have 25,000, 35,000 people show up at airports. We use airports. Are you not worried about the disease We have a lot of issues, people. Sir. Well, so far, we have had no problem whatsoever. It's outside. That's a big difference, according to the experts. And we do them outside. We have tremendous crowds, as you see. I mean, every and, and literally on 24 hours' notice. And Joe does the circles and has three people someplace. Okay. Uh, by the way, did you, did, did, did you see the, one of the last big rallies he has? And a reporter came up to him to ask him a question. He said, no, 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 stand back. Put on your mask. Put on a mask. Have you been tested? I'm way, I'm way far away from those other people. That's what he said. I can't. I, I'm going to be okay. He's not worried about you. He's not worried about the people out there breathing in one another. We've had no negative to Joe. No, no negative, negative effect. effect. We've had no negative effect. And we've After Trump's controversial first indoor campaign rally in Tulsa in July 2020, be it noted, Oklahoma reported a spike in COVID cases. KOCO5 reported six times the seven-day average of known cases prior to Trump's rally. So there's no way some of Trump's faithful did not leave the Henderson rally with a souvenir case of the coronavirus. And by the way, Trump was wrong to assert his rallies were all outdoors. While my snap interview with Trump occurred on Sunday, my overworked editor decided to put up the story on Monday. I could have fought it more, but truth be told, I knew another outlook couldn't get it, and I was relieved to have a little breathing room. At that point, the entire team at the Review Journal was exhausted. Staff had hustled to cover not only the presidential election, But four House races, judicial elections, ballot measures, the Democratic Presidential Caucus, and the June GOP primary. There also was an avalanche of stories outside the presidential contest. Las Vegas media also were handed the horrific task of covering the October 1, 2017 mass shooting that killed 60 innocent people and wounded more than 400. COVID hit Nevadans hard. RJ reporters gave their all to tell readers what they needed to know. And with its third-of-the-nation Democratic contest, Nevada's February 22 caucus played an outsized role in the Democratic primary. The caucus occurred two days after the third Democratic debate of the year, which was held in Las Vegas. COVID had upended how Nevadans voted. 
RJ reporter Rory Appleton's stories about discarded ballots in a Las Vegas apartment building became a national story. There surely were days when everyone in the newsroom felt that they had nothing left to give. Yet they dug deeper. The election occurred weeks later, on November 3rd. On election night, it still wasn't over. It wasn't until November 7 that the Associated Press, CNN, Fox News, and other networks called the contest for Democrat Joe Biden. It wasn't even close. The winner needed 270 Electoral College votes. Biden garnered 306 Electoral votes to Trump's 232. As the news popped, I was at home in deep blue Alexandria, Virginia. I heard people cheering through my dining room window. That evening, Biden gave his acceptance speech outside the Chase Center in Wilmington, Delaware. Supporters standing outside and seated in a sea of cars cheered and honked their horns. We've won with the most votes ever cast on presidential ticket in the history of the nation. 74 million. What I must admit has surprised me. Tonight, we're seeing all over this nation, all cities and all parts of the country, indeed across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed faith, and tomorrow, bring a better day. And I'm humbled by the trust and confidence you've placed in me. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. Who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States. From the Trump National Golf Club in Sterling, Virginia, the 45th president refused to concede. He tweeted, I won this election by a lot. For Trump, it will never be over. That's a wrap, people. Thanks for listening. I'm Deborah J. Saunders, former White House correspondent and fellow at the Discovery Institute's Chapman Center for Citizen Leadership. This podcast was produced by Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions with editing assistance from Lauren Little. I want to thank the Las Vegas Review Journal and C-SPAN for material cited in this podcast. I also want to thank those of you who have joined me through my journey in the Trump White House as well as the amazing colleagues who walked through fire with me. 